All right, good morning. Let's, let's imagine an alternate universe. We do this all the time if you read science fiction or something like Lord of the Rings or Narnia or whatever you read. If you watch Marvel movies, those kind of things. All the time, people are creating alternate worlds and alternate universes. So we know how to do this. So here's the alternate universe I want us to, to create in our minds and hearts. What if the world uh, had, had uh, what if like Jesus and Jesus' followers and Christianity were totally erased from our world. That's the alternate universe I want you to think about. Like everything gone, like a big eraser comes through, no Jesus, no Jesus followers, no Christianity. There would be no crosses probably everywhere. There would be uh, no churches. Uh, there would be uh, no televangelists. That would be a really good thing, I think, right? <laughs> That's one positive. Uh, there would be, how would we do our dating and calendar system? That'd be weird, have to have totally something totally new. There would be uh, entire cities and people with, with new names. Uh, there'd be no Philadelphia, there'd be no Los Angeles, there'd be no John. I wouldn't be called John, what would I be called? I don't know, that'd be a, a fun <laughs> thought experience. What would our world look like with no Christianity? And here's the million dollar question, would it be a better place? Don't answer right now. Don't answer right now. We're starting a new series today called 10 Questions. And here's our thought process behind why we're doing this series. I do lots of coffees and lunches and different people on spiritual journeys. And I'm convinced there are barriers that keep people from seeing Jesus and seeing the way of Jesus as good and beautiful and true. And that's what we're going to argue throughout this series. Legitimate barriers. For people that you may be here this morning, I met somebody at first service, I said this, I didn't know if anybody was there, that you may be totally new and checking Christianity out. She's like, that was me. That may be you. We're glad you're here. There may be people like literally wondering if they should come back to church after COVID or wondering if they want to follow Jesus or if this is worth it, that they've been wounded and hurt. And there's a lot of us that truly want to follow Jesus, but we've got concerns and we don't know the proper answers. So this series will address all this. So we kind of put together the top 10 questions that serve as barriers to our faith. And we're just going to go at them and we're going to have really honest conversation. You'll see that today from the get-go. I may offend some of you today. I apologize in advance. Uh, you can talk to me later. But we're just going to have frank talks. That's the kind of community we are because that's how important I believe these things are. And I deeply believe the way of Jesus is good and beautiful and true. But there's some legitimate questions we need to wrestle with as God's people and to lament over and, and maybe even confess. We have a thing called a big read around here. A couple times a year, we'll pick a book. I really believe what, reads, what we read forms us. And so uh, our big read for this series is Confronting Christianity by Dr. Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. She's out of Oxford. And it's really fabulous. It won, I think, the 2019 Christianity Today Book of the Year. So I want everyone to read it. I really do. You don't have to. Does anybody read books anymore? Anybody? I feel like I'm like one of the last surviving book readers. So this is important. And so you can listen to it, whatever. We want you to engage. Uh, there's good news and bad news. We had copies for sale, but the first service bought all of them. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's good news. We will order more, and we'll have them here next week. The chapters are short, so you can catch up. We are offering a couple dollars cheaper than where you could find it normally. Or if you're like that kind of person that wants to get rolling, uh, we have a QR code out there that you can just scan it, and it'll go to wherever you buy your books, and you can get it Kindle or Audible, however you do that. 
Also on the table with the QR code are a couple other resources that the teachers in this series will be using to go at these questions. So if you're like that type of student that likes to go above and beyond, there's other books to read, which I, that's me, I love that kind of stuff. Um, also each week, each question, this week included, each speaker will give other things to follow up on that particular question. So it could be podcast, it could be a YouTube interview, it could be an article. If you're like, I'm still unsettled or I want more or you can uh, look for that list. We'll put it out on social media. It'll be on the website. And then finally, for this series, we're also doing a podcast every week. So I'm, film, I'm, I'm recording it this Tuesday, and it'll be out sometime this week. Trust me, this message is long already today. It could be really long. I got so much uh, data that I studied and things. That, and so that'll be where the podcast comes in. And so we'll just have somebody asking me questions, and we'll just talk more about that. So if, if you're like, want to continue on with some of those questions, those are some of the things that we'll be offering. How's everybody feeling about the series? Like, yeah, Ooh, yeah, I think it'll be awesome. Um, so our question today is, is the world better off without Christianity? Is the world better off? Imagine that world, that alternate universe. Would that be a better world uh, than what we have right now? There's lots of people that say yes. I mean, you're smart people. You know that. Uh, Back in 2004, a group of atheist thinkers began to publish all these books, kind of going at religion and Christianity in particular. They've become known as the new atheists. And they've had a profound effect, I think, especially on the younger generation. These are very smart men and women. And they are coming with both guns barreling after those of us who follow Jesus and for really anybody of faith. Um, I'm going to just give you one quote to represent their mindset. Because I don't want anybody going, growing up in our church, going through our church, not knowing this is out there. Like, you gotta, we got to know everything. And these folks would say, absolutely the world's better off without Christianity. And we need to hear them out. So... Uh, This guy's name is Richard Dawkins. He's probably like the godfather of the new atheist. And uh, here's one of his quotes. I could go on and on, but that would be a really depressing message. So I'm just going to read one to you. Uh, Brace yourselves. Are you ready? He's kind of an angry guy. All right. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, I don't even know what some of these words mean, uh, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously, malevolent bully. Um, Well, let's pray. Thanks for coming today. That'll That'll be the sermon. I, I, I hear that. I appreciate the, the boo. I would, I would boo it too. But as followers of Jesus, we need to be able to hear those things. And these are really smart people, and we need to be able to have an answer for that. And not in a defensive posture, but in a way that, no, we hear that, but Christianity is good and beautiful and true. And that's what I'm going to attempt to answer today. Uh, so Bethsaida is going to come in just a second and read our scripture for us. Let me pray uh, for us. When she reads, she's going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you say, that's right. That's right. All right. Good job. Um, Father, uh, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for being with us. Thank you that uh, just in song, uh, powerfully, we can invite you in. We, we so desperately need here. If this is just me running my mouth over things I've read and us just kind of nodding along and going home unchanged, it's just a waste of time. And we don't want it to be a waste of time. So we pray that right now you would enter this place in our hearts and our minds and grab a hold of us. 
Help us to pay attention and not be distracted. Help your word to come alive in our hearts and our minds. Help us to be the kind of people that, aren't easy, that are not easily offended, and uh, we have thick skin but soft hearts, and we're willing to have important conversations. Um, and as we exit today, may we truly know deep in our bones that the way of Jesus is good and beautiful and true. Uh, we love you so much. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. A reading from Isaiah 58, 6 through 12. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to lose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. And your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Speed of God. So to start this question and to answer it honestly, we have to start with uh, something I think that most of us assume. I think even atheists would assume this, that we look out at the world and we say things are not right, that there's wrong things. I think most reasonable people in the course of a day, things that happen to you reading the news, you can look out and say, this is a world gone wrong. Now, how we repair that and how we go, now we're obviously going to differ on that, but we need to start with that. And throughout the scriptures, the prophets and the writers of scripture paint a prophetic vision for us, acknowledging that things are not right, that it's a world gone wrong. That's the phrase I'm going to use. And here's the prophetic vision of how to make a world gone wrong right again. And this is one of those passages. This is Isaiah, maybe our most well-known prophet. Jesus would have known Isaiah well. Isaiah is writing to the Babylonian exiles that got taken away from their city in Jerusalem, was burned to the ground, including the temples, taken 700 miles away into this pagan empire. And then some of them begin to return 50 to 70 years later. Isaiah in Isaiah 58 is writing to this group. The children and the grandchildren of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego coming back to the city. They've only heard about it. Maybe some of the ones who were there are very elderly and they're making their way back. And it's an apocalyptic scene. It's, it's, it's like, imagine a city that's just ruined and burned to the ground. No walls for protection, no beautiful temple, no scriptures, everything stripped, unemployment super high, there's no food. And they're trying to figure out in a world gone wrong how to live. How do we rebuild this? Maybe some of you have felt that looking around at our world the last couple of years. What do we do? And the prophets and the scriptures give us a vision for what to do. Isaiah tells them, the preceding verses before Bethsaida read, 
talks about how all they knew to do was to mourn and to weep. And they should have. Lament is, is a powerful thing. We should, as followers of Jesus, lament mourn. So they're tearing their clothes and sackcloth and ashes. And that's it. That was plan A, B, and C. They knew nothing else. So Isaiah is coming in and kind of saying, you think you're fasting, that's the plan? Or you think that's true religion? You think that's the way things are going to be fixed? That's not going to fix things. That's the heart of the passage. And then he begins to paint this vision of how to make a world gone wrong right again. So if you look in Isaiah 58, 6 through 12, if you have your Bibles and bring your Bibles to church, it's wonderful. We'll look on them on your phone because we'll return to things. And I want you to, to be familiar with getting into the scriptures. So there's two sets of three verses, 6 through 9 and then 10 through 12. And they're arranged kind of poetically with an if-then give and take. So Isaiah's like, here, he's painting a vision. If you do these things, then these things will happen. So with that in mind, let's go back and, and look at how he does this. He says in verses 6 and 7, If you loose the chains of injustice, if you set the oppressed free, if you share your food with the hungry, if you shelter the unhoused, if you clothe the naked, if you take care of your families, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then you will be known for your righteousness and God will have your back. And then he does it again. He does the same pattern. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, if you stop pointing fingers and talking maliciously, if you spin yourselves on behalf of the hungry, if you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become noonday. This is beautiful language. Then Yahweh will guide you always. He will satisfy you in a sun-scorched land. Yahweh will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fail. Then you will repair the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. Then you will be called repairer of broken walls and restore of streets with dwellings. It would be like if Isaiah came into our midst and he's like, well, you think church, you think true religion is showing up on a Sunday and kind of singing along, maybe doing a hand raise, you know, listening to the pastor, taking a few notes, doing communion and going home. You think that's it? You think that's a plan that's going to change the world? Ha! Not that that's unimportant. It's really important. But you think that's it? Ha! And then he casts this vision. Jesus was steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, particularly Isaiah. And I'm convinced that Jesus, in his teaching, it was heavily shaped by Isaiah's word, particularly Isaiah 58. Let's look at one of those passages that Jesus takes the mantle of the prophets and for his people in the Sermon on the Mount, cast prophetic vision of how to make a world gone wrong right again. You are the salt of the earth. The salt loses its saltiness. How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus uses two metaphors. He says salt. And salt, they didn't use salt to really flavor food as much as a, it was a preservative agent. They didn't have like freezers and refrigerators. It kept food edible. And he's like, you as my followers, if you follow this prophetic vision, then you will be preservers of all that is good. And then he says light. Uh, we take light for granted. 
Do you remember back when we had all the storms and power was going out right and left? I took it for granted. And then when it's night, it's dark. These people, when the sun went down, there's no electricity. So they would light these little oil lamps. And Jesus is like, you would never light your oil lamp at night and put it in the closet or put a bowl water. At this point, people are laughing. They would have been, that was Jesus' humor. He's working the crowd. They're kind of chuckling, right? You would never do that, he says. So is my followers. If you get a grasp of what it's like for the kingdom of God to come to earth and make everything that's ever been wrong right again, you will let your light or your good deeds shine forth to everyone. Jesus has taken the mantle, casting vision for his followers of how to make a world that's gone wrong right again. And here's the, the, the central premise that I will be arguing today, that Christianity is our only hope for making a world gone wrong right again. I love the way Eugene Peterson says those words of Jesus. He says, you're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. And you're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. I think Christianity is the only uh, way of life that provides both a blueprint and the resources for making a world gone wrong right again. And we'll get into that further in the series, other competing religions. We'll talk about that. I think not only is the way of Jesus far superior to a world of atheism, but also other religions and faiths with all due respect. But we'll get there. But the, the contention is Christianity provides the blueprint and the resources. We do a lot of Legos in our house. Legos, anyone? Anybody like Legos? Like five of us can hang out and do Legos. It's awesome. Legos are awesome. So when you get the box and you open it up, they give this incredible instruction sheet. And so they give a blueprint of how to build this incredible structure that you bought. They also give you the resources. They get the little bags, and they're labeled in different colors. It, it, it's like an idiot it, it could put it together, right? It's, it's pretty simple. But can you imagine opening up a big Lego set and having no instructions? I think even the best of us, the architects, the engineers in the room, would be like, I, I don't even know where to begin. Or could you imagine having an instruction set and then having an old uh, like bucket of Legos from your grandparents that's been given to you? You're supposed to build the instruction set with that. See, atheists don't have the blueprint, and they don't have the resources. The way of Jesus gives us a blueprint, that prophetic vision, and also the resources, most notably the power and the spirit of God in our midst. So that's the contention I'm, I'm putting forth to you. So what does this look like? I'm going to tell some stories today, give some illustrations. What is this? Have we ever seen this? I think we have seen this. I think we see it in the early church. Uh, sociologist Dr. Rodney Stark, he's at Baylor now. Years ago, uh, he was not a Christian. He was an atheist at the time. He got obsessed with this question. These are his words. How did an obscure, marginal Jesus movement become the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries? We've just assumed that this is what it is. But as a sociologist, he says, this is unbelievable. This marginal little ragtag group that worshiped a crucified guy, how did in four centuries it overwhelm the world? He's like, I'm obsessed with this. I've got to figure this out. So he dug in, and he didn't come up with a silver bullet, but he came to four or five different points. He's like, this is how it happened. So let me share this with you. I think it paints vision for how we can now, in our age, bring these same things in. He found that the early Christians provided social services the government did not provide. He quotes Emperor uh, Julian in the, in the 300s, ranting against the followers of Jesus, telling his people, we got to do better. 
They're like, it's so good, those Christians. He has a line in one of his letters. He said, they feed their poor and our poor as well. And he, and he talks about how they created like a mini welfare state in a world that didn't have any of that. Secondly, uh, he found that Christians treated women better than everyone else. Now, understand this, ladies. The first century, it wasn't like now. It was very sexist, very patriarchal. Women didn't have any legal rights. They were seen as property, kind of the same level as slaves. In this world comes the way of Jesus. And in the Jesus movement, suddenly women were honored and respected. Women served as apostles and pastors and deacons and teachers and church planters and evangelists and patrons. Christianity was the first religious movement to give married women rights and to place duties upon the husband as well. He also found the way of Jesus and Christians considered all human life to be sacred. There's this devastatingly horrible thing called infanticide. And when people would have babies, and they'd have lots of babies, if they didn't want the baby, they couldn't care for it, or a lot of times, sorry ladies, I know this is hard to hear, if it's a female baby, or a baby that had some kind of deformation, they would take the baby, walk outside to the, to the garbage dump, and leave the baby to die. This happened all the time. It was accepted as totally okay. No one writes against it until Jesus until Jesus followers. They not only said this is sin and this is wrong, they would go take the babies and bring them into their own homes and adopt them. They would also go into areas of, of plague where plague would come through and just wipe out. People were leaving cities and the Christians would enter the cities to care for people and treat them back to health. Christianity, he found, was also very inclusive in a world that was so segmented and had tribalism and you only hung out with people with your same social uh, status and honor status and wealth status and your same ethnicity. That's how tables were populated. Here come the Jesus followers. And at their early tables, like this right after the resurrection, their tables were filled with men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, honorable and dishonorable, all breaking bread together. He sums it all up uh, by saying this. Here's how the early Christians literally changed the world. They walked the talk. And here's, here's his own, this is a little like nerdy academic, but I want, I want to give you his own words. He says, let me state my thesis. Central doctrines of Christianity prompted and sustained attractive, liberating, and effective social relations and organizations. I believe that it was the religion's particular doctrines that permitted Christianity to be among the most sweeping and successful revitalization movements in history and was the way these doctrines took on actual flesh, the way they directed organizational actions and individual behavior that led to the rise of Christianity. He says they changed the world because they walked the talk. They smoked what they were selling. Can I say that in church? I don't know. Strike that from the audios. I don't. That's the deal. Like that's that. This is a scholar. It's amazing to know that Dr. Stark became a follower of Jesus after writing this book. He was so moved by how they changed the world. Now here's here's where we're going to start to get a little personal. If you were to talk to people in Portland that aren't Christians, kind of outside the church world, would they say the same thing about churches and followers of Jesus? Don't get defensive. <laughs> Just ask, what do you think they would say? Oh, there's Christians, I don't agree with them, but boy, they walk the talk. Boy, they're, they're good and beautiful and true. Here's what I hear, and, and it's really troubled me. I'm just gonna be vulnerable. I'm not saying this is all of you, but I've heard it consistently over the last couple of years. Our city's hurting. We know that. That's unequivocally true. 
And I've heard from many followers of, of Jesus like, oh man, Portland is going to hell in a handbag. Oh my gosh, kind of judgment and looking down on it. Like I've only been here for seven years, but this is my home. I love it. And I want to see it beautiful. And, I'm, and you know, I don't always say it in the moment, but I'm like, come on. You know, if ever we needed to lean in, it's now. It's not lean away. And if you're like, well, I don't know, John, I don't agree. Well, let's go back to the Bible. If you disagree with the Bible, that's on you, not me. Jeremiah was a prophet who also wrote to the exiles. These young men and women carried away to Babylon. I could talk for hours how horrific Babylon was. If you don't like Portland, oh my gosh, Babylon was horrible. And they're trying to figure out how to be faithful. And Jeremiah writes them a letter, and they're hoping. He's like, God told me you're going to come home soon. Yay. He says, no, you'll be there for 70 years. Can you imagine? And here's what he says. He doesn't say go underground, hide, live in fear, fight them. Here's what he says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Here we go. You ready for this? Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will prosper. You hear me, church? (laughs) If Portland prospers, we'll prosper. You may not like that. Take it up with Jeremiah. <laughs> My friend Kevin Palau, a Palau Association, told me a story years ago, and, and he wrote a book about it, about his friendship with Sam Adams. Some of you who grew up in Portland may know Sam Adams, and not a Christian. Sam would say that. He would say he's liberal and all those kind of things. But it got so bad back in the day that he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a last-ditch effort and actually ask the Jesus followers for help. And so this beautiful friendship emerged. And since that time, uh, under Kevin's leadership and due credit to the city leaders, including our present mayor, they have reached out consistently to churches to ask for help. You may not know that. You may not like that, but that's the truth. There's hundreds of churches right now in conversation with the city on how we can help and plant gardens and make Portland beautiful again, that the kingdom of God would come to Portland as it is in heaven. They wouldn't say that. That's what we're saying. New hopes at those tables. New hopes at those tables. And we're, we're going to work hard and we're going to roll up our short sleeves and we're going to be part of this. What, what can you do? Start to get involved. Pray for your city. Have a different mindset. Lean in, not away. You heard the announcement. Every single Sunday, we have the privilege of serving a wonderful meal to our unhoused neighbors. Some of you draw, drive right through uh, where they've kind of set up shop down there. because they got no other place to go. And I don't know how you feel about that, but why don't you feed them? Right? Why don't you come together? Like, let's, let's make a difference. Uh, we, we do this thing called Neighbor to Neighbor. Every second Saturday, I had such a privilege of coming on the 10-year anniversary, and Stuart, who launched it, many of you know Stuart, drove me around to the different sites. 10 years of faithful followers of Jesus going out on Saturdays with families. There were little kids and going into homes and, and cutting grass and cleaning out gutters and fixing things because people couldn't do it. They were unable to do it. My goodness, that's beautiful. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. That's what our church is going to be about. That's what we're going to be like. Our our vision is to follow Jesus and share his love. Love is not an emotion, biblically. Love is action. It's action. It's enfleshed. And us Christians, we do a good job talking. I'm one of them. I'm running my mouth up here all the time. I can talk a good game with anybody. We do a great, we got the talking thing down. Check. (laughs) We don't always walk the talk, do we? And people see that. 
And it, it prevents them from actually hearing what we're saying. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, what you are stands over you all the while and thunders so I cannot hear what you say to the contrary. I had a mentor once say, the church just gets it backwards. We start with you know, running our mouth and kind of telling the good news. And it is good news. Hear that. But we got to start with good works that lead to goodwill that open up hearts to good news. We live in Babylon. That's what it is. We're not going to just be able to show up at a street corner. Hey, let me tell you about this. And, oh, thanks for telling me. Where can I sign up? That's not how it works. We got to start by living it out so that people say, that looks good and beautiful and true. Tell me more. I saw a, a movie rendition of Les Mis years ago starring Liam Neeson. I saw it as a young pastor. And uh, he's playing Jean Valjean, who steals the bread, 17 years in prison, gets released, but not really. Because he's got to carry a card around with him. He can't find a job. He can't find a place to, to sleep. Everybody thinks he, either they run from him. And, and so he's, it's a new kind of imprisonment. And he's uh, in this town. The scene is he's laying there. He's hungry. He's cold. He's shivering. And this woman walks by. And she's like, you can't sleep there. And he's kind of exasperated. He's like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? I want to work. I'm hungry. I got nowhere. And she looks and she points to a church. That's just this well-lit, beautiful church. She's like, they'll help you. That's my vision for New Hope. That's our vision here. That no matter what people think about us, even if they disagree with us, they'll be like, I don't know. Those people are kind of crazy. But they'll help you. They'll help you. The vision is that people, they may not agree with us, but they can't help but like us. That if we cease to exist, that new hope was wiped off the face of the map, that people would be deeply grieved in this city. They'd be like, where in the heck are we going to go? How are we going to do that? That's the vision. Peter says it like this. He says, he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor in the first century. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What if New Hope became known as the church that is like, like to use Isaiah's words, light breaking forth in the dawn, a repair of walls, a restore of streets with dwellings. Man, that's awesome. That gets me out of bed in the morning. I feel like I'm yelling a lot. Am I yelling a lot? <laughs> I hear, uh, come on, that, now that's my southern roots. Like, if you start talking to me, it's going to get crazy. But I hear, I also, we want to be honest in this series, I, I also know that this is going on in the room. I'm pretty confident of it, because I have lots of coffees and lunches, and I read a lot about this. And this is what's going on. Okay, John, that, that's, you talk a good game. That sounds good. I don't see it. <laughs> like, I, I've been heard by the church so many times, I don't even know where to begin telling you. Uh, I, and I know a lot of people who profess to follow Jesus, and they don't. Please hear, we know that. I know that. That's very real if you're here and you're feeling that. You're not alone. 30% of Americans now identify as nuns, meaning they have no religious affiliation. Back in 2007, it was only 16%. Uh, only 25% of Americans attend a weekly religious service. 27% don't attend one ever. One out of uh, every 10 Protestants under the age of 35 have left church altogether. And 24% of people age 18 to 34 think pastors are dishonest. I don't take offense to that. I understand it. I understand why they feel this way. We have to grapple with this. And I've read, I've read a tremendous amount on this. I've read blog posts and listened to podcasts. There's no one answer. 
But I would put forth to you the primary reason why people are, are leaving church uh, is because the opposite reason that Stark found that the Christians changed the world. They're leaving church because they don't see Jesus followers following Jesus. They don't see them walking the talk, especially younger people. And there's a lot of you in the room this morning. We see you. Parents, grandparents, listen. Don't get defensive right now. Don't take it personal. Listen, please. I plead with you. Talk to your kids. Watch. I talk to them all the time. I have coffees with people all the time. They are watching us, and they see Christian leaders continually embroiled in in sex scandals and in financial irresponsibility and power plays. They see churches marked not by inclusion but by racism. They grew up hearing our parents and grandparents telling, telling them how important it is to have integrity and character, and they see us following people with none of that. They see us more passionate about winning elections than seeing kingdom come to the world. You hear me? I know, it's, I know I may be offending some of you, so be it. We got to see this. They see Christians more prone, twice more prone to fall for conspiracy theories. And 25% of Christians still believe in QAnon. I mean, come on. They see Christians having crosses and storming the Capitol and attacking our police and attacking our elected representatives all in the name of Jesus. That's not Jesus. But they see it. They're watching. Brendan Manning says it well. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The biggest barrier we're going to talk about this whole entire series is people that purport to follow Jesus and don't. And I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to shame myself. I'm right there with you. It's, it's a clarion call from the prophets of old to rise up and through the power of the Holy Spirit to live out what we believe. And I think, as Stark found, that will change the world again. That will make a world that's gone wrong right again. If any of you are in the room and you have been hurt by the church and wounded by the church and hurt by pastors and hurt by other Christians, I mean, I can't take accountability for all that, but I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. And we can do better. Amen? We can do better. One of the people that gives me hope is, uh, is Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is a writer that had just profound impact and still does on my faith. He wrote, Jesus I Never Knew, What's So Amazing About Grace. He's written 25 books sold 17 million of them, and they're now in 50 languages. If you've never read Philip's work, I I highly recommend it. Uh, Probably one of the more powerful books I've read that he's written came out in the last year, and it was his memoir called uh, Where the Light Fell. Uh, Philip grew up in a hyper-fundamentalist, super-racist church in the South, and his dad died at 23 because he removed himself from medical care thinking God was going to save him, even when all the doctors told him not to do it. Then his mother got so angry and so bitter, she became abusive to him and his brother, and he grew up in this super legalistic church with an abusive mom. His mom's not talked to his brother in 50 years. She's never read one of his books. Can you imagine? He said he grew up with this image of God as as God being like judgmental and harsh and angry and unforgiving. So the million-dollar question, I've listened to probably like six or seven podcasts with Philip where he talks about this book, and every single one of the questioners asks this. You know it's coming. It's like, Philip, you see so many people leaving the church. How are you still here? How are you? And he always pauses. He takes a deep breath because he's wise. And he's like, well, I learned a long time ago, you don't walk away 
from Jesus because of Christians in the church. That's a bad move because then you lose Jesus. I was like, huh. <laughs> and he goes, I understand it. I get it. But he goes, I, at 71, I'm more convinced than ever that God is good. I'm more convinced than ever that Jesus is the source of all goodness and beauty and truth. And I'm convinced the story of the Bible is simply God's rescue mission for his family. And it's our only hope in a world gone wrong. That's essentially what he says again and again and again. And maybe that's not enough for you. I get it. I don't mean to be trite and just give you these, these answers. But I would say it this way. I think we must judge Christianity on Christ and not Christians. The gospel is not a story for perfect people. Exact opposite. It's for the most messed up people like myself <laughs> that do not have our ducks in a row. And it promises to slowly but surely in one day for sure make us right with God. That's the gospel. So we can assume people are going to be messed up. That's the whole heart of the gospel. We also can't assume that God's some kind of like control freak that's going to make us behave in a certain way, that he's responsible for people misbehaving in his name. That would, that would remove love, which assumes free will. So it would be like if, if I came up here behind the piano, and I'm sure Michelle could do this much better than me, and I was like, hey, I want to play you guys for worship a, a Mozart concerto. How do you think that would go? Do you think that would sound good to yours? I've never had a piano lesson in my life. It would not sound good. I'd just be like, I'd go to the entertainer because that's the only thing I know. And you're like, that's not Mozart. It would be really wrong and unfair to Mozart to be like, well, I just heard that. I don't like Mozart. Or it'd be really weird if you said, I don't like Mexican food because I don't like Taco Bell. That's not fair to Mexican food, right? <laughs> now, if any of you like Taco Bell, let's talk later. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really understand that. So we have to focus on Jesus. We have to start, and that's why we're starting the series here. Philip had this great analogy years ago. I can't remember which book it was. He said somebody gave him a huge dictionary and a little magnifying glass because the dictionary was so big, the print was super small. No one, even with good eyesight, could read it. So to read it, you had to use the magnifying glass. And he said to use it to put the glass down, you could see the word in the center of the magnifying glass super clearly. And this is how magnifying glasses work. But along the edges, the words were blurry. And so you move it, right? He said, here's the problem with the church. I'll never forget this. I'm glad I read this when I was young. He said, we've taken the focus off Jesus and put it on other things. And when you take it off Jesus and put it on other things, guess who gets blurry? So the heart of all of this is to recenter our focus on Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the same thing. Somebody once asked him, the great pastor theologian, how do you tell if a church is a good church? He's like, he just remarked really quickly. He said, oh, just listen to how much they talk about Jesus. And I promise you, if you're new to New Hope, we are ruthlessly Christocentric. So let's kind of bring this in for a landing. Is the world a better place uh, because of Jesus and his followers? Or the inverse question, is the world better off without Christianity? I, I think not. I really believe that Christianity is our only hope for a world gone wrong to be made right again. Dr. Tom Holland is a, he's a world-renowned historian, and he came out with a book a few years ago called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And Tom essentially argues that the modern, Western, liberal, secular thought is deeply entrenched with Christianity, and they don't even see it. He makes the case that the non-Christian mindset is irrevocably shaped by Jesus and his followers, even though they claim to be the exact opposite. He shows that universal human rights and the equal dignity of every individual were first taught by Christians based on the Imago Dei. 
He reveals that the idea that every person has a right to their body and that sex must be consensual started with followers of Jesus. He shows that Christians were the first ones to sacrificially love the sick, orphans, poor, and the despised, and that charity was unique to the Christian way. Holland demonstrates that followers of Jesus were the very first people to to declare that slavery was sin and must be abolished. He reminds us that it was Jesus and his enemies that first practiced enemy love and shows even the birth of modern scientists came from Christians. Holland shows that so many of the core values that shape our entire Western world are uniquely Christian. And he believes that once we abandon Christianity or try to, we're left with a world with no purpose, meaning, morality, free will that's ruled by power and mastery instead of love. Holland also believes uh, Christian ideas like justice and mercy and equality and women's rights and anti-racism. You can't pursue those things while denying the veracity of Christianity. It requires the very things. He, he, gives, he gives this idea, even to go at a Christian or a pastor or a church and rightly call them out for bad behavior requires believing in the way of Jesus to do so the very ideas of justice and morality. So he's like, if you're going to do that, but at the same time saying the way of Jesus is not true, you're cutting off the branch you're trying to sit on. The new atheists claim that religion is harmful. Evidence would show the exact opposite. A USA Today op-ed revealed that going to church actually reduces your mortality by 20 to 30% over 15 years. So that's going to be our new marketing campaign. (laughs) come to church, you'll literally live longer. Uh, the article goes on to show that people who go to church regularly, and parents hear this, this is, this is demonstrably true for the younger generation, are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression and anxiety, are less likely to divorce, are more self-controlled, and have greater purpose in life. People of faith also commit way less crime. The data shows that turning away from faith in God, particularly Christianity, will create a public health crisis. Atheist, social psychologist, and best-selling author Jonathan Haidt sums up the data. He says this. Surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer-lived, and more generous to charity and to each other than secular people. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors, and they give more of their time to and their blood. Yeah. What would a world without Jesus and his followers look like? Let's go back to that original thought experiment. I'm putting forth to you it would be a world without a clear sense of right and wrong, be a world without justice, be a world without mercy and grace and forgiveness, be a world not built on love, be a world where we didn't value each and every human life as made in the image of God, made equal, endowed by God with unalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It would be a world where children and women and the disabled are dehumanized. It'd be a world with unchallenged slavery. It'd be a world without our best universities and a world where many countries didn't have literacy or health care. It'd be a world without Salvation Army, World Vision, World Relief, Compassion International, Mercy Ships, Goodwill, Samaritan's Purse, International Justice Mission, Prison Fellowship, Habitat for Humanity, and Catholic Relief Services, just to name a few. It'd be a world without most food pantries and homeless shelters and domestic abuse shelters and hospitals. 
And we wouldn't have the courageous legacies of Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, Abraham Lincoln, and so, so many of the saints of old. Is the world better off without Christianity? I think not. And again, I'm not alone in that. This was staggering to read. Uh, There are 17 million fewer atheists today than 50 years ago. It's going in the opposite direction. People are actually getting more religious. And Christianity is growing faster than at any time in human history. We'll talk about this next week when we talk about the diversity of the way of Jesus. But Africa has averaged almost 38,000 new followers of Jesus every day for the last 20 years. Is the world better off without Christianity? No way. You know, I am convinced that the way of Jesus is good and beautiful and true, even if all Jesus' followers are not. And I think it would would erase incalculable amounts of goodness and beauty and truth from our world if we erase the way of Jesus. I deeply believe, and I invite you into this, that Christianity is our only hope to make a world gone wrong right again. Let me pray. God, thank you for the legacy of the men and women who went before us. When we talk about these prophetic visions, we can actually turn to history and see examples of what that might look like. God, allow your church to rise up. Bring us back to life. We need you, God. We need your Holy Spirit to animate us. We need to get past our ego and our divisiveness and our judgmental spirits. We need you to break our hearts for the sake of the world. The world so desperately needs you. The world needs to see once again that your church is good and beautiful and true, that we indeed are the body of Jesus. They need to see Christians that actually walk the talk and Jesus followers that actually follow. And we cannot do that without you. So God, we pray, come Lord Jesus, and we pray for the kingdom of heaven to come to Portland as it is in heaven. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said. So let's come to the table. I love coming to the table to use Philip's analogy. It focuses us. So if I get off track during the message and forget to talk about Jesus, I hope I never do, God forbid. It reminds us what is the most important thing. And I would say if you're here and you don't know and you're kicking the tires of faith and something brought you here today. I told you I had a conversation with with a woman after the sister. That was her story. Look at Jesus. Just like ignore us for a while. Just look at Jesus. Start with Jesus. Look at what he taught. Look at what he did. Look at what he promised. Just look at Jesus. If you're in a place that you've been hurt by church and you've been wounded and you're not even sure whether it's worth coming back after COVID to church and that's many people wrestling with that. You're trying to deconstruct and reconstruct. Don't bail. Don't give up. Jesus is good and beautiful and true, and focus on him. And if you're here because you follow Jesus, and that's many of you, and so much of what I said today isn't you, I know that. Hope you didn't take it personally. But you love Jesus, and you want to follow him, and you want to see people experience him. Focus on Jesus and allow the table today to be a catalyst not to just talk about it, but to live it. May it be an image of what it looks like to break our bodies and literally spill our blood for the sake of others, for the good of the world. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, I took the cup and said, this cup is the sign of the new covenant, which is given in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may go ahead and take the elements. And if you're willing and you're able, uh, let's stand together and worship our God.